0: Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mason Now, on with the show. It is Wednesday, January 20th, and NSI has brought together a group of our visiting fellows to discuss the role social media played in the build-up to and after the events of January 6th. To explore these questions, we're joined by Lisa Kaplan, Klon Kitchen, and Harold Moss. Lisa Kaplan is the founder of Alethea Group an organization focused on helping organizations navigate the new digital reality and protect themselves against disinformation. Klon Kitchen is the director of the Heritage Foundation's Center for Technology Policy, where he steers an enterprise-wide, interdisciplinary effort to understand and to shape the nation's most important technology issues. Previously, Klon served in the intelligence community, where he worked on influence campaigns. Harold Moss is the CEO of Gray Elk Enterprises, where he provides consulting services for cybersecurity and mergers and acquisitions. He has spent a significant part of his career as a consumer and vendor security specialist for companies such as IBM and EMC. Klon, over
1: to you. Harold and Lisa, good morning. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having us. Excited to be here.
1: Yeah, it's great. Uh, So I think we've got a really interesting conversation. Obviously, the events on January 6th uh, have captured... The public's attention, rightly so. Uh, We had a a mob attack on the U.S. Capitol, uh, arguably identified as an insurrection, uh, with um, heavy political context in which all that was occurring. And one of the things that has been demonstrated very clearly is the role that social media played, both in the run-up to the events on January 6th, even the events themselves, and then certainly the kind of follow-on consequences, uh, both uh, practically and politically over the last uh, two weeks or so. So uh, I wanted to just have a, a conversation with each of you to get your perspectives on this. And Lisa, I'm wondering if you could, uh, just based on your background and your awareness of things, maybe walk us through a little bit of the, the, the kind of run-up to June, January 6th, what was happening online, uh, and what kind of the context is for, uh, for understanding this
2: yeah absolutely. so um, first of all, thank you for having me excited to be here this morning and talking about this um important topic about what happened and you know what is the role that information played in leading in being in really leading up to these events on january sixth and so when we think about what happened on January 6, I actually want to take us back several months. We're talking um, you know, earlier in 2020. Um, really, I would say early spring is when we started tracking it at Alethea Group, but it may have been happening before that. And so what we saw is we saw a lot of bad actors. We're talking foreign governments, um, for example, even just through state media, saying things like the election is rigged, saying things like there will be political violence in the United States. Um, And creating context where it allowed these sorts of conversations to grow. That's not to say it was necessarily started by a foreign government. There were plenty of domestic actors in this space, both um, legitimate political players who may have been pushing these narratives for their own personal gain. We also saw financially motivated actors who were putting out this content in order to generate profit. Regardless of the actor and the motive, um, because there were many actors and many motives, the end result was um, these conversations that started happening in silos and really um, in conversations that led to mistrust of our institutions and the process um, that, you know, govern our democratic institutions. Um And then, so leading up to election day, we have this context where, you know, we're already calling into question before the ballots are even counted whether or not the election is legitimate. Um, On election day, we then saw multiple baseless allegations of voter fraud um, that were popping up, things that were going viral, whether it was rumors that ballots were being thrown out, whether it was um, you know, the, the whole idea that somehow 100,000 votes got added for one candidate versus another when it was an honest mistake that the clerk later fixed. All of these um, allegations were caught and disproven in real time. However, they continued to fester and grow legitimacy within certain conversations because of actions that were then taken based on these false allegations. Um, So you know, then we see things coming into play like our legal system um, and these lawsuits that were filed and later thrown out because they didn't have the evidence to back up uh, potential instances of fraud. And one thing I think that's really important is if there is an instance of fraud, it needs to be brought forward. The evidence needs to be brought to a judge who can then determine the best course of action in our given legal system these um cases got thrown out however it further fed into some of the narratives that already existed around the idea of um, corruption around the idea of um, an illegitimate election around the idea of a potential a potentially um, non-peaceful transfer of power. And so then what we see is um, we see all of these different points where an election could potentially, through legal means, um, you know, we could throw away tradition. We could um, not count the votes for the electoral college, that sort of thing. Electors could change their votes. Um, And we see all these different um, points where the election outcome could potentially change, one of those, of course, being January 6th. Um, during this time, violent extremists who don't necessarily represent um, what we would consider to be mainstream beliefs were using social media to organize out in the open. These are people who genuinely believe because of all of the information that they've been exposed to um, and in the, the different algorithmic silos in which are created um, for them on the Internet are, are seeing this information and then organizing and acting upon it. And that makes sense. If you really think that the election was stolen, if you really think that American democracy is in danger, you might do something about it. Um, And so that's what we saw. We saw individuals who were organizing, some coming together to exercise their First Amendment right, others organizing to storm the Capitol and cause chaos. Um, But that's what we saw on January 6th. And what's interesting about this uh, from an academic perspective, of course, the whole event is um, a really, you know, terrible time for our democracy. But um, the what's interesting about this is a lot of the organizing was out in the open. It took place on social media. It took place, um, you know, sometimes mainstream social media was being used to drive individual actors and groups to um, smaller platforms or separate chat rooms and forums. But all of this was being organized in the, um, using, you know, and we were able to identify some of this using open source information. Um, And so so one of the things that I think we need to determine is how serious is it if it's happening in the open source? Um, This is also an instance where those events did come to fruition. And, um, you know, we were were able to see that there's real world damage from what happened on January 6th.
1: So Harold, I want to bring you in here because you have the benefit of um, some corporate experience. And uh, I think it would be helpful to hear your thoughts in terms of um, even if you don't know directly, but if you're one of these companies and you start to see um, this narrative of uh, illegitimate elections and so on, starting to kind of take hold on your platform, what are the things that goes through the mind of a business leader in a company that has to then engage that? And what insights can you share in terms of um, what they were likely going through uh, over the preceding days to the sixth? So
3: so I think, we have to look at this practically and and Lisa made some great points uh, about reinforcement effectively. Right. And filter bubbles. However, it's a tool. And if I'm a corporation, I have millions and millions of people using my platform. It's a road. Everybody drives on it. We don't blame everybody. If they have an accident, we don't sue the road, the city, because two people collided their cars. Um, so, so they're trying to figure out how to best filter it. And we do that as a government by putting stoplights in, putting um, lights, et cetera, yield signs, whatever, um, adding police to the road. And that's what they're doing. Um, the key point that Lisa made was it's an algorithmic, right? They're in it for a business. At the end of the day, as a corporation, your obligation isn't to the social good. It is to your shareholders. And they're trying to figure out how to optimize their ad value. And they do that algorithmically. Um, They do want to filter out the hate speech, but for a different reason. It's to protect their brand. So when they look at this, they're looking at it completely differently and saying, look, we don't want this on our platform. We don't want to be responsible for managing it. We understand there's a necessity to do it. And they do the best they can. And like anything else, um, computer programs and algorithms are fallible. And they do the best they can to create things, to filter that down so that they can have a human look at it. Because again, you're not gonna have 10 million people looking to filter through this content. Um, but I think what was really salient that Lisa brought up is it wasn't just social media, right? There was TV, Fox News did a lot of reinforcement of those messages. You had an orchestrated effort by the political party to do this. It could not successfully have been done just on social media. It was a tool that they used to get there. And this notion that it's the, the evil, the ultimate evil is, is naive. And to be honest, we've had this discussion about disinformation back in 2018. Um, the Senate Hill, there was a hearing. Diane Feinstein brought up disinformation in that conversation. So this isn't a new conversation. It just happens to culminate into a bigger thing and people's emotions are raw, and they're reacting to it without actually trying to solve the real problem, which is a cultural problem. And it goes beyond just the social media tools. And truth be told, um, as Lisa highlighted, you are tracking this because you had access to this information. What happened if it was on a different channel, let's say a Slack channel, which is private, that you can't monitor? Um, Or they use some other technology like, I don't know, messaging your cell phones, um, signal. At at that point, now they've got a, a, a way to communicate and not be blocked. And I don't want to Advocate for them to do that by any means. I, I actually am concerned about bringing some of these up, but at the end of the day, this is just one of many avenues. They will find another path. It's like water; you will find the easiest path.
1: Just absolutely. all right. So we've got a couple of uh, of kind of facets of the conversation. So, Lisa, you're making the point that you know, listen what we saw pre January sixth was a um, a kind of sticky and growing. Uh, narrative that a larger and larger group of people started to believe. And there were a whole host of inputs into that narrative that had all kinds of different motivations for for kind of pushing it. We had political actors who had political motivations. We had people who feel disenfranchised believing it because that was the best way to kind of interpret their world and explain kind of what they were seeing and and the like. And then you also have corporate actors who uh, you know, Harold is arguing, you know, are really just kind of being governed by fiduciary responsibilities. They're not actually thinking about public good, and maybe even they shouldn't, is is, is kind of Harold's point. Um, as a guy who used to, who, who used to practice um, uh, influence campaigns on behalf of the intelligence community, I think one of the other aspects of this is, um, you know, when it comes to influence, influence is ultimately based on legitimacy, right? So, so speakers or influencers who gained the greatest level of influence are the ones who are perceived by their audiences as being kind of the most legitimate. Um, and then legitimacy is is kind of the, the fruit of what I would call coherence, right? That you, you offer a viable um, kind of worldview for explaining kind of what's going around, around people. And one of the things about the internet is that almost any worldview can build <clears throat> within itself a type of coherence that gives it legitimacy, which then gives it influence. So things that used to be views that used to be on the periphery of society because they just honestly couldn't build a, a, a gravity to it, right? They just didn't have the ability to kind of attract each other to it. Well, on the internet, you now can. And the worst part is now you can generate supporting data that may not be true, But it's sufficiently believed to then kind of underscore that type of coherence, which then brings legitimacy, which then brings ultimately influence. And I think this is the case here. I mean, by every metric that I've been able to see, these elections were among the most secure, observed, um, you know, investigated national level presidential elections in our history. And by every metric. It passed with flying colors. Nevertheless. The idea that it was stolen, the idea that um, that the, the new administration is illegitimate is really sticky. I don't know how many minds have actually been changed by any of that. And it's got this reinforcing culture online. Now, I think Harold's point is true in terms of most companies uh, are, are thinking primarily by their fiduciary responsibility. We'll talk a little bit about this later when we think about the aftermath, um, but one thing that doesn't help them, if that is, in fact, the way they think about it, is that they constantly frame themselves in kind of right side of history arguments and moral arguments, and they're constantly kind of positioning themselves as being these kind of, um, at least in the social media, the larger social media companies, as these kind of, uh, you know, kind of do-gooder organizations who are focused on making the world a better place. Okay, you know, no one says you have to do that, but at the point where you do that, don't be surprised when the general public kind of holds you to account along that, that standard. Does that make sense, Lisa?
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that you and Harold both brought up a few points that I think are really important to touch upon. And the first is the algorithms that determine what information that we see. Um, you know, these are algorithms that were created by humans. The data to feed them was selected by humans, and they can ultimately be changed by humans. And what these algorithms do is they essentially determine what information. And this is going to be a gross oversimplification, but they determine What information you may want to see in order to keep you on their platform in order to then be able to show you more advertisements. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how social media platforms make money fine. Um, They're also making a lot of money, which is, again, good for them. But what they're doing is they're selling access to your data and your internet browsing habits. So for example, Facebook knows how long it takes for you to go from the top of your newsfeed to the bottom. It knows if you've stopped to pause and read something. It knows if you've clicked on a link. It knows if you've shared it in a message. It knows if you've actually gone on to a different tab and you've left it open for 20 minutes and you're not actually looking at Facebook anymore. So it's collecting all of this data on you and it's showing you things that it thinks you want to see. Again, not a problem. Um, I'm a big hiker. So for example, my Facebook feed shows me, um, you know, different hiking meetup groups. It shows me different, um, different um, articles. It shows me different, um, you know, ways to get outside, that sort of stuff. Um, and that's all fine and good. We were doing um, an investigation into militias in Michigan um, at Aletheia Group, which were a firm that detects and mitigates instances of disinformation and misinformation. Um, So this is what we do day in and day out. And we were doing this investigation. And what was interesting is um, these Michigan militias had Facebook pages that were then recommending different Michigan militia meetup picnics and other Michigan militias to join that may even be more extreme. So when you put it into that context, that's where it starts to get a little bit dicier. And so the argument that it's just an algorithm that's showing you information, well, yes, but that has consequences and the right guardrails need to be there. Um, and unfortunately, when we go back to social media, companies are acting in the best interest of their shareholders because that's what businesses do. It's going to hurt their bottom line to hire the number of people needed in order to potentially clean up some of the stuff if they're only relying on algorithmic tools. So I, I do want to address that because those algorithms are really important. They do create these alternate contexts. And it goes back to, as Klon was saying, it goes back to trust. Um, There's no editor on the internet. Likes are not necessarily peer review, but it gets treated as such. And that's how people build influences through engagement. And so what we'll see is different influencers in these little algorithmic silos. And another challenge about the algorithms is never the two shall meet in the sense that the people who are organically seeing things in their feed pop up that say um, the election was rigged, it was stolen, it wasn't free and fair, we have to go out and fight. Those are not the people who are also seeing um, information about this is the fairest election that we've probably ever had as a country. This is the safest election. So one of the things that I think that we do need to have an honest policy conversation about is what should the algorithms be like? Because if there's cross-pollination and an opportunity to organically see different information, and I'm not talking about fact-checking, because another point that Klon brought up is influence is about trust, and, um, you know, sometimes, and fact-checking doesn't necessarily build trust, um, and we've seen that it may not be as effective as we had originally thought, so we need to start thinking about other strategies, but these are the sorts of questions that we need to be asking so that we don't, we don't, as a society, let these conspiracies continue to grow because people are only shown certain information sets.
1: So let's, uh, just in the interest of time, let's go and transition now to the day of. We've got the events on January 6th. Any thoughts in terms of uh, how social media was either employed by, you know, the, the people who were, who were invading uh, the, the national capital or in terms of how news was aggregated? Uh, just any thoughts on that. Either of you would be fine.
3: So I'm going to jump in. I apologize, Lisa. Um, At the end of the day, this was orchestrated by individuals. It's people that communicate. Um, Blaming technology for those problems is a mistake and it's naive. Um, We talked about algorithms, and you have to remember there's two ways those work. There's personal curation, and then there's the corporate curation. We want to blame the corporate curation, but the reality is. The personal curation is to filter out things that don't go with my native dialogue, what I believe in. So it's a reinforcement mechanism, but we actually do that in human life. All social media is an amplification of what we already believe. It doesn't change our views necessarily, although it does give us exposure to other things. Um, but we're going to filter out things we don't care about in general. So if I want to truly believe the election was stolen, no matter what I t- anyone tells me, I'm going to believe that. And to Khan's point, it's all about the influencer. So in this case, it was the president. That was really the lead up. It wasn't the technology that got us there. It was an individual who had influence. He had charisma, whether you like him or not. Um, and he swayed a whole group of people to do something abhorrent. But it wasn't the technology. That was just an avenue he used. It was a tool. And at some point, you have to accept and place blame on the cause, root cause, not just looking for a quick fix. And I'm not saying you're looking for a quick fix because there are creative ways we could deal with this in terms of the government introducing things like filtering engines that allow us to look for keywords that will help us identify those things. But that's not the responsibility of the social media companies. And if you let every social media company come up with their own strategy, you will never get anything this productive anyway. So, you know, at the end of the day, The lead up was amplified by that. And yes, there were people who were listening to the president's feed, but they could have also watched it on Fox News as he was saying that on their phones. We have technology that enables it. It's not a specific technology.
1: So Harold, I don't hear Lisa, if I'm understanding, Lisa, correct me if if I'm wrong. I don't hear Lisa saying that these companies are ultimately responsible for what happened on January 6th or any of the other kind of public ills that are often ascribed. Um, So I I don't hear kind of, you know, first order responsibility being kind of laid at their feet, um, but I I don't think also that Lisa or or me would agree with this notion that they're just kind of completely neutral, uninvolved. You know, as you described them, kind of public roads, um, and I, I think there are plenty of examples. Let's let's move off January sixth for a second, in terms of Facebook's challenge with the Rohingya. Um, with I mean, like there are there are multiple examples where the the nature of the the networks themselves and what they do nine times out of 10 what they do is great because when i get onto facebook i don't want to see crazy uncle joe's political views i want to see my nieces and nephews and the uh the the timeline algorithm they're using knows that about me because i've given them sufficient input and they prioritize that for me and they Mm deprioritize crazy uncle And that's what I'm asking them to do. Same thing with YouTube, you know, same thing with Google search. I'm asking Google, let's, let's be clear about what we're asking these companies to do. Google, I want you to scour the internet and I want you to surface to me the content I'm looking for, typically on average on about a six word search string. And I want you to filter out all the stuff I don't want. And I don't really want to look past the second result. And you know what? They do it. Right, that's an inherently like that. That is a that is a a service that we really like. Well, when I'm looking for good stuff, that's great. When you start going down rabbit holes and you start wanting to do the reinforcement mechanism of negative, not just negative. That's the wrong way to say this. Some of the violent content that we're talking about here. Well, there's there doesn't seem to be any kind of check. There's there doesn't seem to be any kind of a break that would cause people to like not continue down that rabbit hole. In fact, what we've seen with YouTube is that their kind of next video surfacing algorithm actually pulls them deeper and deeper and deeper into it. So they're not, I don't think it's right to actually call them neutral because they're actually implementing business practices that once people kind of orient on on a horizon, there's algorithmic kind of pull toward that horizon. So I don't know that it's really fair to say that they're neutral. I don't think they absorb all the blame. I just don't think they're neutral.
3: But, but how's that different from shopping? So you, I'm sure you've both been on Amazon, right? The reality is Amazon, under the covers, and every retailer, by the way, even before the internet existed, used those same models. There's a reason you walk down aisle three at Target, and at the height of a small child, there's that little color object that fits with that demographic. They're just using the same technologies we've used and before technology really was enabled to get more customers to engage and keep you interested.
1: Well, the difference, the difference though, Harold, is that no one dies when I buy that thing, right? That's the point is, is I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pushing back on the business model. In fact, we're all well-served by the business model. Um, But I actually, there, there is a, a, a a public responsibility that we all have. Um, And that's why we have, you know, responsibility amongst one another, accountability in different forms, some formal, some informal, so I don't think that, that, that because they're companies, they escape that. But uh, that's not to say, though, for, to be very clear, and I don't know that Lisa was saying this, but maybe she was, and I'll let her tell, um, that <clears throat> we should look at the events on January 6th and say, aha, this would have never happened without social media. I don't think that's true. Or uh, it wouldn't have been as bad um, without social media. Maybe, but not necessarily true. Or that three, we should blame this on social media. I definitely don't think that's true. Lisa am I am I wrong
2: So you're not wrong. And a couple of things that I also want to clarify is, um, so it's not necessarily the fault of the social media companies that somebody came um, to the Capitol with a gun and stormed the building. Um, That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying, though, is that oftentimes the information and the organizing mechanisms does occur on social media. And Harold, you're absolutely right in that um, people are starting to move into encrypted channels and off platforms, but they're leaving breadcrumbs so that like-minded individuals can continue to find them and join their groups and movements. And the way I view the social media um, company's role in all of this is the same way that I would view the Hilton's role if somebody had rented a room at the Hilton and had a meetup of violent and known individuals who are organizing to plot an attack. They should be able to spot that and they should be able to cooperate with law enforcement. If we accept the social media argument that they're trying to recreate what's already happening on Offline, whether it's going to aisle three at Target or just being somebody who's allowing freedom of speech and people to connect great, then you're held to the same standards as everybody who's offline. Um, I think one of the things that's changed with the advent of social media and disinformation is the speed at which information can flow and the consequences that it can happen. So um, for example, we've seen um, an edited video go viral and have mainstream media reaching out for comment in under four hours, and it's an edited video. So one of the key differences is the timeline. That's something that we haven't figured out as the society how to adapt to And also Harold, you're absolutely right having each social media platform come up with its own strategy and try to implement it in itself that's kind of what we have now with the community standards which vary from platform to platform and aren't implemented evenly across and it's not working. So what I am advocating for instead is a broader strategy that's um, that's you know able to address these matters in real time um, because what we have isn't working.
1: Great. Uh, Okay. So now we need to start thinking about like what's happened since and a good bit has happened since. Obviously uh, among those uh, reactions to the events on January 6th uh, was the permanent ban of President Trump from Twitter, uh, other suspensions uh, for for he and others um, uh, on other platforms, uh, the removal Uh, or at least strong cracking down on some QAnon uh, networks and bot networks on multiple platforms. And then obviously the events with parlor where uh, Apple and Google removed uh, the the social media app parlor from their app stores and where Amazon web services uh, stopped providing them cloud infrastructure services uh, as well. Thoughts on that.
3: Um, I'll hop in if you don't mind, Lisa. So, so I'm going to start and work backwards if that's okay. Um, When we talk about, the platform's removing them. That is their free market attempt to actually manage the problem. There, That was a clever way. Uh, there are other, other underlying motivations possibly behind that. For example, if I was Amazon, I'd be worried about DDoS attacks and bringing down my network. So the other motivations of why they do that, but at the end of the day, they realize they participated, they played a role with this. They don't have an end solution to get there, but they saw it as important. I think one of the things this does is it highlights one of lisa's points which is we need a centralized strategy to deal with this that's from the government um they created ways to get there technically um, as a former nerd i can tell you we could have used they could have used things like stream sequel and artificial intelligence to do sentiment analysis um, so that they could start to filter that down to to some extent um, but at the end of the day, now you get into this debate about well, what are they filtering? Is the government looking for this information? You you, you get into a really challenging and hairy spot, especially if you are the corporation. Um, at some point, there's going to have to be a cooperation between them, the public, and the government to successfully pull that off. Um, I haven't seen that happen, but that would be a great way to get there. Um, and if you do that, then you have a way of dealing with the after effects because the reality is the problem hasn't gone away; it just changes. The message was a single message. They consolidated around it, and they reinforced it. That's how you convince people of anything. If I can, if I keep reinforcing a message that the sky is purple, sooner or later, you will believe it's purple. That's what they did. They used every single media channel they could do to do that. And at the end of the day, we need to, one, focus on the source of the problem and make sure that's responsibly managed, then come back to the tools as opposed to working from the bottom up.
2: So and I'm with Harold on this and that, you know, first of all, nobody's getting a gold star for me in this situation. Let's put it that way. I think that when you're talking about deplatforming people, um, which I do think is a strategy that can be effective if done correctly and not in a crisis moment, um, you know, these these platforms, they have community standards, they should be enforced. If you break the community standards, there should be consequences the same way that every action has consequences. Um, that being said, I do think that um, we we need to start looking at, um, you know, how we got here, and because there were a lot of bad actors along the way who were exploiting these existing systems. So when we have this conversation about how to move forward, I completely agree. It needs to be through regulation, whether that's from um, the U.S. or the U.K. or the EU, remains to be seen. And there's a lot that's it, a lot of interesting approaches in this space. But what we're really talking about at the end of the day is how do we balance privacy, accessibility, and security, because we need to be able to have those three elements um, and be able to get the right mix. And it may not be perfect at first, um, but what we can do is we can try to figure out how to get there. When it comes to all the actions that have been taken, again, this was all done um, to address an immediate crisis. It wasn't done in a thoughtful, strategic manner, and we now have the opportunity and hopefully the political will to make that happen. Um, And, you know, maybe the best thing to do in this situation when there was also, after January 6th, talk about attacks on Inauguration Day, on state capitals, um, and all these other, other opportunities, taking away the organizing mechanism can be a really effective way to take the temperature down, to be able to slow down any potential planning. Um, Yes, it's moving into encrypted channels, but there will be fewer people able to find them if those individuals are not on social media. Um, And so, you know, that's the sort of thing that, again, it's not necessarily the, the thoughtful strategic framework that we need to move forward after January 6th, that we hopefully have the political will to develop and implement. But it is the stopgap measure of how do we prevent another attack, a physical violent attack on our democratic institutions, from coming to fruition.
1: So it's interesting because I think I'm sideways with both of you in terms of what we should do. Uh, I just don't. I don't see a regulatory framework that would work. That would meaningfully change uh, anything about the outcome. In fact, I look at what happened in the in the wake of all this, and I see some some market decisions that, that are quite effective. So for example, <clears throat> the actions by AWS, Apple, and Google, for, those can easily be quantified as contractual resolutions, right? If you want to be on our platform, there are rules. They're very clearly articulated in our contract that you agreed to. You are not keeping your part of the bargain. We're cutting the contract. Like it doesn't have to go beyond that for me. Like we can get into motivations if we want to. And I'm sure there are myriad. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a reason why, why other businesses haven't, uh, um, haven't used Parler's business model. And that's because two things happen when you kind of adopt the free, you know, free speech standard on social media. One, there's a lot of really awful things covered by free speech. And so that stuff tends to proliferate and metastasize on your platform. And not a lot of people want to be a part of that. It's really gross. And then number two, you expose yourself ultimately to existential liabilities. And that's exactly what's going on. And uh, both Google, Apple, and Amazon uh, AWS, uh, I think we're just like, even if they weren't worried about civil or criminal liability, just reputational risk. We're just like, yeah, we're not going to be a part of this. That's why we have these rules. You broke the rules. We're cutting you off. And it just doesn't have to go beyond that for me. And then politically, you know, we've talked about there are a myriad of actors kind of pushing this. Well, the people who are pushing this are paying a price, Right. And, and that's being worked out right now. And, and we'll see kind of to what extent that kind of takes hold. But to me, um, as awful as it was, and it, and it was awful, and I don't want to see it again. But <clears throat> our standard can't be, OK, no bad things ever happen. Right. That's not that's not a free society doesn't work out that way. Um, and uh, I'm afraid there will be some who will push for that. And I thought that was a mistake in the, in the context of the war on terrorism. Uh, And I think it's the same kind of mistake that we could be making here just because it's not bound to reality. Not because I don't want people to be safe. I obviously do. I dedicated my career to that. Um, But I guess what I'm saying is like in the wake of January 6th as awful as it was. I'm seeing a lot of self corrections occurring quite independent of the government. And I see many of those corrections as being superior to anything that the government could reasonably enforce. And so it just seems to me like, um, you know, it's a continuation of the long simmering conversation about the role of government in American society. Uh, any last thoughts? I want to go to Lisa first, and then, or, or I'll go to Harold first, and then we'll we'll go to Lisa, and then um, we'll close it out.
3: So, and, Juan, I want to be clear. I don't think regulation's the answer. I think the fact that you let the markets control, to your point, Klon, is the right way to deal with the problem. Um, I do think the government plays a role in fixing the problem, which is to provide tools that enable these companies to operate better. Um, I also wanna emphasize something that Lisa brought up, which I think is really the important aspect of this, which is we lack comprehensive privacy security policies on how we deal with things. And until we address those as a nation, you'll never fix this problem. So at the end of the day, she hit the really key thing we need to focus on, which is how do we want to deal with the new world, privacy, our role in that and our rights which are completely forgotten today,
2: you know, and so um so I do think just to to close us out, like it is on un- what happened on January sixth is awful. It is a total stain on our history as a country, it is the most under threat our democratic experiment has ever been it took storming the Capitol to have the political will to have these hard conversations, but I am optimistic for the future and that they will happen. Um, I do think that we need a regulatory framework because I think our status quo isn't working. And even as, you know, we, we just talked about how, um, for example, Parler got booted off of AWS, but now it's hosted on a Russian company. What does that mean in terms of how user data is going to then get used and exploited? So there are other consequences that we really need to think about as we're having these frameworks built. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, I think it really comes down to balancing those three things, as most big challenges do. We're balancing privacy, security, and accessibility. People need to be able to access technology to be able to participate in our everyday life and our economy. Um, But we also need to make sure that we have... um, we have the necessary privacy measures in place and that we have that security knowing who the users are. Um, One of my favorite sayings, and I forget who said it, is that the internet didn't come with mailboxes in the sense that we're not actually sure who is doing what. And it's probably at this point too late to recreate the internet. So going back to Klon's point, how do we? How much risk can we tolerate? How do we develop the necessary frameworks to be able to mitigate that risk and still enable us to have a digital economy and society? Um, and you know, these are the uh, the questions that we can answer. And again, unfortunate, it took these events to really push these really hard conversations into the civil discourse. But we're here, so let's have these conversations.
1: Uh, Lisa, Harold, you guys were great. Thank you for a very interesting and dynamic conversation. It's a pleasure to join you for that. And I hope you guys have a great day. Thank you. Have a great Thanks one. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.